Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hello, my name is Charles Ree, Cowan's Healthcare Technology Analyst, and welcome to the Cowan Future Health Podcast. Today's podcast is part of a new monthly series that continues Cowan's efforts to bring together thought leaders, innovators, and investors to discuss how the convergence of healthcare, technology, and consumerism is changing the way that we look at health, healthcare, and the healthcare system. And joining me today is Dr. Peter Rasmussen. Peter currently serves as the Chief Clinical Officer for the joint venture between the Cleveland Clinic and telehealth vendor American Well. Peter is also a Professor of Neurosurgery at the Cerebrovascular Center in the Department of Neurosurgery at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, he's also the former Medical Director of Digital Health at the Cleveland Clinic, where he oversaw the clinic's overall digital health strategy and implementation of their digital medical platforms. This includes the clinic's flagship virtual care service, Express Care Online, as well as uh, site-to-site services and virtual chronic disease management capabilities. So Peter, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Charles. Thanks for having me. 2020 was a very challenging year for everybody. Hopefully uh, 2021 uh, will get better soon. And, and telehealth has really kind of shown as a bright spot during all of this, but you know, clearly telehealth has been around for much longer than that. The clinic itself was a, an early adopter of telehealth going back, call it eight to 10 years. You know, m- maybe starting from there, you know, talk about how you know, yourself and at the clinic clinic looked at telehealth at the start. What, what kind of uh, drove adoption of telehealth uh, at the beginning here? Telehealth at the Cleveland Clinic goes back probably 25 or 30 years. Predates me even to starting the Cleveland Clinic in 1998. And I believe they were instrumental working with NASA in terms of cardiac telemetry data being sent from Space Lab uh, down to Earth. So they've really been working in digital health for quite some time. Cleveland Clinic has been doing uh, site-to-site primary care uh, visits on a very limited basis for the past uh, 25 years. It really kind of got going in the modern era about 15 to 18 years ago when we started a telestroke program to bring access to Cleveland Clinic experts in rural hospitals and underserved uh, EDs in Ohio and Western Pennsylvania. And that program has grown fairly dramatically uh, over the years now, servicing between 3,000 and 3,500 patients every year, and really br- brings great access to the highest level of care when patients are in an emergency situation facing life and death uh, problems. Toby Cosgrove recognized a stronger need for uh, telehealth and digital health as a future strategy of Cleveland Clinic growth. And uh, for those of you who don't know Toby, he was the most recent CEO who stepped down about three years ago. Tom Mihalovic is our current CEO. Toby uh, recognized that uh, digital health was the future, that just as retail moved from uh, local stores to online venues like Amazon that the Cleveland Clinic needed to move in that direction as well. And uh, he energized the digital health strategy. That was one of the reasons was to uh, modernize the care and meet patient expectations for online access. It was also to help prepare the organization for lower cost alternatives to delivery of care as we begin to move more at risk models and servicing our ACO population. And we needed to create efficiencies also to lower the cost of delivering care, regardless of how things were moving forward. And so he got things moving, created a digital health team within the organization. I was fortunate enough to serve as medical director of that for 
uh, six years prior to moving to the joint venture about one year ago. We moved in multiple directions at that time. Probably the area that got the biggest traction was we created our own branded online urgent care uh, solution, which was called Express Care Online. Uh, that continues to this day. At any given moment, it can service up to 20 uh, different states, approximately 20 different states. Most of the work, of course, is concentrated in Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Indiana, and Michigan, where brand recognition is uh, most most readily available. We chose to partner at that time with what was known as American Well, now Amwell, as our technology vendor to facilitate virtual visits. And for those of you who know how that platform functions, it not only does on-demand urgent care type functionality, but also allows for scheduled uh, virtual visits. Uh, so we began to move to develop virtual visit care six years ago in the specialty space and the primary care space in, in addition to this on-demand urgent care. It did help meet that need of the organization to provide broader access to Cleveland Clinic experts from around the nation and Canada. As a global healthcare system, the desire is always to allow patients around the world to have better access to Cleveland Clinic physicians. Peter, you, you talked that Toby, when you guys were kind of embarking on uh, expanding sort of virtual care uh, lower lower cost. You, you kind of noted lower costs, trying to be ready for new payment models. Is that was that the primary business case for adopting sort of what you know what we now look at as telehealth? You know, I think that was part, predominantly the primary business case, but I think it was equally important for us to move in the direction of what patients, we, what we were thinking patients uh, wanted. And as I mentioned, just as uh, so many other things are done online now, uh, airline tickets, shopping for virtually everything buying cars, things that, you know, when I was a child would never imagine that you would be, or when I was a young man, never imagined I would be doing online. People are doing readily online. And certainly as medicine has moved more toward grounded in hard data by laboratory and imaging data in terms of rendering diagnoses and uh, treatment recommendations, uh, that is greatly facilitated by online care and has diminished the requirement of a physical exam in many of the medical interactions. So I think a lot of it was driven to meet what patients' expectations are. If I can buy a car online or do other things online, why can't I get most aspects of my healthcare online? You know, one of the big challenges, it seems, the reimbursement has been sort of the biggest challenge. You know, and, and so you talk about this business case and obviously a view where, where you thought patients, the patient demand would be. It, what Has the lack of reimbursement, let's say prior to last year, been the primary reason why we have not seen, you know, greater adoption of telehealth until now? I think there are a lot of reasons why providers and health system leaders uh, were reticent to move more directly into digital health at a large scale. I think questions around reimbursement certainly are one. Depending on how integrated the healthcare system is, obviously the vast majority of revenue can come from other areas like laboratory services, imaging services, procedures, and points of healthcare contact that require actual hands-on. And in my mind, the business case for digital health is that by essentially offering free or low-cost uh, initial contact points for patients, you will greatly increase your downstream revenue uh, by when those patients come for laboratory imaging and procedure uh, care. Obviously, some administrators and healthcare leaders don't see things that way, that 
every interaction should be captured by some kind of reimbursement. Budgets are built uh, on an annual basis based on the number of patient interactions that are going to occur. And uh, frequently there's reticence to deviate from known reimbursement models of in-person care with fear of not uh, being able to meet a budget. So it does take a little bit of a leap of faith that you're going to ultimately do as well financially by widening your funnel to patients or improving access to patients. But sometimes there's some uh, leadership concerns that's actually going to be the case. Toby never really felt uh, the lack of reimbursement was a significant barrier to digital health, didn't make it a precondition to widening uh, digital health services. Uh, he felt that this is the way patients and healthcare consumers were moving in the future and that we needed to be prepared for what patients wanted. So when there was a larger wholesale shift to digital care by either from a patient's desired or what we none of us could foresee, which would be COVID, he wanted to make sure the organization was prepared for that. And fortunately, we did have a, a strong foundation of digital health when uh, COVID uh, did strike. Other times, um, barriers to adoption can occur at the clinical leadership level, that there's just a sense that healthcare is practiced in person. Uh, this is how it's been done for decades and decades, and that digital care is inferior, and this isn't what most patients want. Um, obviously, I think uh, what we're recognizing as we emerge out of this COVID pandemic, that patients are readily adopters to digital healthcare, and for the most part, this is the preferred way that patients want to interact with their healthcare providers when possible. One wanted to talk about actually, uh, obviously, uh, COVID. And, you know, last year, uh, if it, you know, it's obviously a very, has been a very difficult period. And it still is, obviously. And the telehealth did kind of come out as a, you know, as a, let's say, quote unquote, winner in all this because people realize the, the benefits uh, of virtual care. You, you talked about it earlier, right? And just current while we're in this public health emergency, a lot of the rules have been relaxed. Reimbursement has been very generous. As things stand, you know, m maybe talk about at the cl uh, clinic itself in terms of how utilization has changed of telehealth, uh, the views of providers, maybe uh, how, they've, how they've incorporated telehealth into the practices you know, maybe from peak to current, you know, where, where things stand maybe. And how durable do you think that is? Yeah, I think like every other health system um, that went through COVID saw an immediate overnight dramatic, you know, 10 to 20 fold increase in the number of virtual visits. You know, really within a two week period of time, uh, we went to about 95% of all the outpatient activity being virtual, which was a mixture of video and telephone calls. It stayed pretty high for the first month, and then it began to taper down. Uh, and I think currently at present, last numbers I saw, the start of January of 2021, about 30% of ambulatory visits were now telephone and or video, uh, which is a pretty significant decrement from you know uh, about 95% where we were at the start of COVID. And it is up dramatically from where we were pre-COVID, where about 1.5% of all ambulatory visits were uh, video or telephone. So it's still a, a huge increase relative to that. But clearly, if we could do 95% of the visits by telephone or video at the, at the height of the Ohio uh, concern of COVID uh, being at one third of the visits now is a, is a pretty significant decline. Why, why does that drop, though? Yeah, I, th I think it, it's not the patients, that's for sure. The patients have an initial reticence, I think, to some video connection, but uh, once they were sort of forced through it because of COVID, um, they've really become ready adopters to it. You know, since March of 2020, uh, Charles, in my own practice, I've only seen one person in 
uh, one patient in person, only one patient in person. Otherwise, it's all been video uh, or telephone, and the vast majority of those have actually been video encounters. So patients adopt this readily. I think for the most part, at least within our organization, a lot of it has been driven by the clinical leadership. As I mentioned earlier on, there was there, you know, these these uh, clinical leaders are held to budgets and their targets. And these budgets have been constructed based on the revenue that's associated with in-person visits. And that's the way they're assuring themselves of being able to meet their budgetary targets is by going back to how the budget was constructed and the revenue model that's associated with that. I think there's some concern or lack of desire to experiment with an increased volume of activity using video and uh, the different reimbursement models that exist for this. Uh, which is unfortunate because I think in the long run that's going to work against uh, health systems like the Cleveland Clinic when we could probably be more progressive, meet patients and their needs and their desires by staying more digital and probably capturing a larger book of business in the long term. Yeah, I, I think one one interesting aspect of the public health emergency is the the relaxation. In, uh, what's the right way to say it? Uh, the non-enforcement of state licensure requirements. I guess that's the right way to say it. Um, and that's sort of not being enforced currently. How important has that been to the ability for the Cleveland Clinic to deliver virtual care during, not only during the pandemic, but how important do you think that'll be going forward? You know, we, we've heard from, you know, other health systems, you know, that they think that's very important, particularly, let's say, for example, in the tri-state area where people live in, you know, you have multiple states very close by each other, right? And, and they, they're, they're lobbying hard to have those made permanent. What are your thoughts there on that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, clearly state licensure is, you know, an artificial um, bureaucratic barrier for delivery of care. I, I understand where it came from historically. I, I don't think there's dramatic different, and I myself hold about 10 different state licenses for a variety of reasons. I don't think there's a dramatic difference in the quality of screening that's being done by Pennsylvania versus Ohio versus Florida. I think they're all very diligent in assuring that uh, I have the proper credentials and training to deliver healthcare. So I think it's artificial. Uh, I think it should go away. It does inhibit the access of Americans to quality healthcare delivery. Um, I think there is good healthcare uh, ubiquitously around the United States. However, if you have a complex problem, it would behoove you to uh, find uh, the best expert you possibly can to render an opinion on uh, what it is that you're dealing with uh, to try to make sure that the care that's being rendered is uh, the best possible for you. Healthcare is not formulaic as much as we try to move toward uh, guideline and care path driven care. At the end of the day, there's a, a patient that's attached to the care and not a population of patients. And uh, each individual needs and should be uh, treated um, on an individual basis with an individualized uh, care plan. You know, as an example, or I know firsthand how high quality the cardiac care is that's delivered by the Cleveland Clinic. In the joint venture, you know, we run our second opinion program. I'm privy to a large number of patients on a daily basis who've been given diagnosis X and treatment plan Y by their local hospital. And they come in front of our cardiologists and cardiac surgeons, and they have dramatic differences in the diagnosis and the treatment plan moving forward. And I think a, a barrier by a patient living in Pittsburgh as opposed to Cleveland to availing themselves of expertise wherever it may be in this country is doing a disservice to our citizens. One of the arguments I've heard made about the state licensure requirement is that states want to know uh, who's who's practicing in their state and, and avoid if, if someone had some type of 
black mark against them in one state, they don't just pop up in their state and, and, and that state won't know. Are there adequate national databases now that states can refer back to that can keep track of these kind of things in, in terms of physicians being censured or things like that? I, you know, I think there are good databases around that. Obviously, there's some failures that we can all point to and cite to on an anecdotal basis. You know, that being said, I think the interstate uh, licensure compact has gone a long way to streamline the administrative uh, identification of individuals who are practicing telemedicine in uh, individual states. I think that's a, a great a solution if it would be more broadly adopted. Fortunately, Ohio is currently not participating in the telemedicine interstate, interstate compact. Um, the same type of barrier extends to nurses as well. Digital healthcare delivery does depend not only on providers, but also nurses. Fortunately, there is a, a nursing interstate compact as well, and it would Again, everyone would be better served by broadening out of uh, these types of uh, bureaucratic solutions to uh, this particular issue. So obviously with, with new vaccines, uh, with vaccines being uh, distributed now and, and vaccination, we're, we're heading towards a, a new normal, or a, not a new normal, we're, we're kind of heading back hopefully to a normal world. But uh, in the meantime, we, we've seen continued rise in infections uh, in the U.S., have we seen with that sort of an uptick in utilization again for telehealth? that corresponds to that, or, or has that stayed fairly stable? Uh, you know, I think in our organization, we've, we've seen uh, the amount of telehealth uh, on the ambulatory side decline from high of around 90, 95% uh, down to about 30%. Hope it stabilizes there. We don't decline uh, more than that. Hard, hard to know, you know, when vaccines are going to be more broadly available to the general public. We still only have a, a, a tiny minority of all of our caregivers. Uh, inside our health system who've been uh, vaccinated or started on the vaccination path. I, th I, think, I think time will tell. Some of it's going to depend upon what happens in the Biden administration around the relaxation, as you mentioned, of the rules around licensure and, and reimbursement. We already are beginning to see from our own legal team concerns about even an absence of change in the uh, rules, uh, concerns about seeing patients across state lines. So I think it's inevitable that we're going to see some restriction on which patients we can see virtually across state lines, whether it comes from federal government, state government, or local administration. How much does the pandemic change the view of virtual care and digital health with physicians at the Cleveland Clinic? Oh, it's, it's, it's completely re revolutionized it. You know, I used to say we had 20% adopters and 80% uh, skeptics. I would say now we have 90% adopters and 10% and skeptics. It's the really the vast minority of physicians who... Uh, really insist on uh, in-person care. From a frontline provider standpoint, the providers really are, are strong proponents of digital health care. And yet you're saying that you kind of stabilized that 30% virtual for ambulatory visit. Is, is that a function then of leadership saying that we want to be cognizant of budget issues, maybe legal issues? Is that the real limiting factor? It definitely is. At, at Cleveland Clinic, it is definitely a function of leadership. You know, the, the uh, Dr. Mihailovic's pronounced you know, pronouncement's been is if a patient wants to be seen in person, uh, we'll see him in person. And, you know, I think that's great. I understand where that's coming from. That's trying to meet the patient where they are, what the patient wants. I think what can frequently happen in trans, translation of that and in implementation of that is that, you know, frontline office workers uh, interpret that as, oh, we're no longer doing video visits, we're doing in-person visits. So instead of being equitable in offering patients a telephone visit or a video visit or an in-person visit, it's most easy to fall back into the old ways of 
just offering uh, patients in-person visits. So it's, it's a good-hearted move, but uh, I think unfortunately it can be interpreted as a, a move back to you know, how things used to be done. Yeah. You know, at the, at the beginning here, you, you talked about the, the fact that the way medicine is practiced, or at least you know, a lot of primary care is done, uh, looking at imaging, looking at lab results, et cetera, that uh, you really don't need as much uh, physical visits anymore. Kind of along with that, you really heard more and more uh, discussions around virtual primary care, uh, virtual primary care models where you can, you know, create sort of networks of physicians to treat, you know, uh, patient population virtually uh, from day one. How, how close do you think we are really to that, to seeing that really implemented on, on, a, on a large scale? I know there are pilots here and there, but in, and what do you think uh, helps get us there? I, I think we're definitely seeing a lot of that going on now, right? So we've got uh, virtual primary care coming from uh, Amwell, Teladoc, other places like 98.6. There are commercial payers that are moving toward a virtual first strategy as a product. And I think it's right around the corner, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I don't know why a young individual who is otherwise healthy, you know, in their 20s or 30s would really want to have healthcare delivered any other way than, um, you know, through a virtual first primary care strategy. There's very little reason that a young, healthy person uh, needs to be seen in, in person for the most part. And I think that's reflected by the fact that 50% of uh, young adults don't have a primary care provider because they don't need one. You know, even if you're healthy in your 40s and your 50s and you move into a health maintenance stage where you need to uh, have things done like colonoscopies and mammography and things like that, for the most part, uh, the interactions short of the procedures and the testing can all be done digitally. If I was an internist, if I was a primary caregiver, I was a family practice doc or nurse practitioner, I would be absolutely moving into delivering a ver a primary care from a virtual standpoint. Maybe switching gears then to the, the JV then, maybe talk a little bit about sort of the work that you're doing there right now and uh, you know, you know, sort of the progress you guys have made so far in the, in the last year since the announcement. Charles, as you know, the genesis of the JV was, uh, you know, came pre-COVID, and uh, there was a strong feeling that the Cleveland Clinic, despite all of the hard work of Toby Cosgrove and Dr. Mihalovic, that we weren't moving fast enough to offer digital health solutions uh, to our patients or to come up with newer innovative programs for delivering healthcare to our um, patients at a lower cost. We recognized that it was something that we couldn't really do ourselves, that we needed a technology partner with great channels to uh, payers and uh, alternative uh, payment strategies. And we decided to work and partner with Amwell to create a joint venture. The charge of the joint venture is to unlock uh, access to the world's best expertise at a Cleveland Clinic through innovative, innovative digital health uh, programs. Uh, we started the joint venture by uh, offering uh, second opinion services to uh, patients around the globe for complex health conditions. Um, we've seen dramatic growth to date in the request for our services. We've made some tremendous impact on patients' lives around the globe. Uh, we uh, deliver a high level of care uh, where we can turn educational second opinion around from anywhere in the globe on an average within two weeks. Uh, and these are for some of the most complex care uh, cases uh, cardiac uh, problems, uh, neurologic diseases, digestive diseases, cancer, uh, et cetera. About a third of the time, uh, we change the diagnosis. Uh, we have a differing opinion on what the diagnosis is or it's refined. And about 70% of the time, we have a refinement to the uh, treatment plan or 
uh, offer an alternative to surgical therapy or a less invasive surgical procedure. All of this is better for patient care and reduces costs uh, to the payers and the employers. And is that going to be rolled out this year? Well, second opinions have been available all the way through 2020. Yeah. Our goal is to launch an additional digital health product uh, or two within 2021. And then just kind of maybe to wrap up here a little bit, you talked a little bit earlier that you see virtual care, you know, virtual primary care being something that's, you know, around the corner. You know, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that investors should really think about uh, in terms of the adoption of virtual care and digital health over the next few years? What what, what do you think are the biggest potential obstacles? Because it seems like the trend has been very positive. No, it's, it's not so much that you just have a technical way to see a patient on a video visit from a primary care standpoint. It's going to be, can you uh, then seamlessly deliver care to that patient through A, prescribing medications uh, when needed, B, referring that patient for laboratory testing uh, when it's re- indicated, and imaging assessments uh, when it's done. And can you efficiently bring those results back into the virtual primary care network for action upon those data points? If you are, are delivering just virtual primary care and you, you think the patient needs a set of liver enzymes for whatever reason, an ultrasound of the uh, liver and the gallbladder, if you don't have a relationship in the, uh, either administratively and or electronically with a laboratory services company and an imaging vendor, you're going to be greatly hampered in what the scope is of, of uh, primary care that can actually be delivered. So I, I would be looking to invest in that virtual primary care network that has the ability to e-prescribe and e-order laboratory and imaging studies and efficiently retrieve the results of those so that you can action on that data and then close the loop with the patient uh, moving forward. Short of that, I don't think the virtual primary care solutions are going to compete with in-person care in the, in the near future. I would, think that the, I, I would think that the real opportunity is the ability for providers to become more, more proactive in delivering care. Because I feel like, you know, at least when you think about the current paradigm, uh, you know, I as a patient, I don't feel well, right? Uh, something I feel is wrong. Um, unless it's caught on an annual screen, but you know, generally speaking, right? I don't feel well. I get an appointment. I go see a doctor. A test is run, and then a, a diagnosis is made, right? And maybe, maybe something is wrong. Maybe something's not. You know, I, I would think that the opportunity when you think about remote patient monitoring, capability, chronic disease management, you know, things like that, where I can be monitored and and then my physician or my caregiver can figure out or, or can be alerted appropriately that you know, I'm not adequately managing myself, uh, that can intervene earlier before you know, I recognize it myself. To me, that seems like the real opportunity or a big, a big opportunity here. Uh, how close are we, are we to something like that? Is that something that we, we see today yet? Yeah, I mean, I, com- I completely agree with you, Charles, that, you know, th- these things like remote monitor and hypertension have some inherent value to it. But, you know, the real reason to, to do a program like that is to, to put in place the technical infrastructure and the workflows to move on to more advanced care and monitoring. Um, so as an example of what, what you're talking about here that may be more proactive are um, solutions coming from companies like Grail. You know, so say, say, you know, once a year you send 
a blood sample and a urine and a stool sample off for genetic analysis looking for cancer. You may feel perfectly fine, no weight loss, no pain, et cetera. But you know, on an annual basis, you just send off those samples and for X amount of dollars, they return back a probability to you of that you've got a cancer. That, that, that workflow is exactly, in my mind, like the, the chronic hypertension uh, workflow. Um, it's the same, you know, it's the same thing. It's you're ordering the test, you're receiving the results, and then you're actioning on those things all through a digital and a virtual platform. Um, so I, to me, that's why, you know, a health system and or the joint venture should be moving in a direction like virtual hypertension management is because once you can put it in place, these longitudinal programs and the infrastructure, you can begin to do these much more meaningful things uh, like we're talking about here. Yeah. So I think, I think the stuff is both here and in the future that you're talking about. Okay, well, uh, we'll wrap it up there. And, you know, as always, Peter, great to, to catch up with you. And uh, thanks for your time. And you know, thank everyone for joining us on today's podcast and look forward to having everyone join us on a, on a future podcast. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.